Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan. And work worry-free wherever you please. Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know, saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package, and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. Well, put on the light. I don't want the light. Come to bed. He heard her roll impatiently. The bedspring squealed. Are you drunk? So it was the hand that started it all. He felt one hand, and then the other one, work his coat free and let it slump to the floor. He held his pants out into an abyss and let them fall into darkness. His hands had been infected, and soon it would be his arms. He could feel the poison working up his wrists and into his elbows and his shoulders, and then jump over from shoulder blade to shoulder blade, like a spark leaping a gap. His hands were ravenous. His eyes were beginning to feel hunger, as if they must be looking at something, anything, everything. His wife said, What are you doing? He balanced in space with the book in his sweating, cold fingers. A minute later, she said, Well, just don't stand there in the middle of the floor. He made a small sound. What? she asked. He made more soft sounds. He stumbled towards the bed and shoved the book clumsily under the cold pillow. He fell into bed, and his wife cried out, startled. He lay far across the room from her, on a winter island separated by an empty sea. She talked to him for what seemed a long while, and she talked about this and she talked about that, and it was only words, like the words he had heard once in a nursery rhyme at a friend's house, 
a two-year-old child building word patterns, talking jargon, making pretty sounds in the air. But Montag said nothing. And after a long while, when he only made the small sounds, he felt her move in the room and come to his bed and stand over him and put her hand down to feel his cheek. He knew that when she pulled her hand away from his face, it was wet. Late in the night, he looked over at Mildred. She was awake. There was a tiny dance of melody in the air. Her seashell was tamped in her ear again, and she was listening to far people in far places, her eyes wide and staring at the fathoms of blackness above her in the ceiling. Wasn't there an old joke about a wife who talked so much on the telephone that her desperate husband ran out to the nearest store and telephoned her to ask what was for dinner? Well then, why didn't he buy himself an audio seashell broadcasting station and talk to his wife late at night? Murmur, whisper, shout, scream, yell! But what would he whisper? What would he yell? What could he say? And suddenly, she was so strange... He couldn't believe he knew her at all. He was in someone else's house. Like those other jokes the people told of the gentleman, drunk, coming home late at night, unlocking the wrong door and entering the wrong room, and bedding with a stranger, getting up early, going to work, and neither of them the wiser. Millie, he whispered. What? I didn't mean to startle you. What I want to know is... Well... When did we meet? And where? When did we meet for what? She asked. I mean, originally. He knew she must be frowning in the dark. He clarified it. The first time we ever met. Where was it? And when? Why, it was at... She stopped. I don't know, she said. He was cold. Can't you remember? It's been so long. Only ten years, that's all. Only ten. Don't get excited, I'm trying to think. <laughs> she laughed an odd little laugh and went up and up. Funny, how funny not to remember where or when you met your husband or wife. He lay, massaging his eyes, his brow, and the back of his neck, slowly. He held both hands over his eyes and applied a steady pressure there, as if to crush memory into place. It was suddenly more important than any other thing in a lifetime that he knew where he had met Mildred. It doesn't matter. She was up in the bathroom now, and he heard the water running and the swallowing sound she made. No, I guess not, he said. He tried to count how many times she swallowed, and he thought of the visit from the two zinc-oxide-faced men with cigarettes in their straight-lined mouths and the electronic-eyed snake winding down into the layer upon layer of night and stone and stagnant spring water. And he wanted to call out to her, How many have you taken tonight? The capsules. How many will you take later and not know? And so on, every hour. Or maybe not tonight. Tomorrow night. And me, not sleeping tonight or tomorrow night or any night for a long while now that this has started and he thought of her lying there, on the bed, with the two technicians standing straight over her, not bent with concern, but only standing straight, arms folded. And he remembered thinking then, 
that if she died, he was certain he wouldn't cry. For it would be the dying of an unknown, a street face, a newspaper image. And it was suddenly so very wrong that he had begun to cry. Not at death, but at the thought of not crying at death. A silly, empty man near a silly, empty woman, while the hungry snake made her still more empty. How do you get so empty? he wondered. Who takes it out of you? And that awful flower the other day, the dandelion. It has summed up everything, hadn't it? What a shame you're not in love with anyone. And why not? Well, wasn't there a wall between him and Mildred when you came down to it? Literally, not just one wall, but so far, three. And expensive, too. And the uncles and aunts, the cousins, the nieces, the nephews that lived in those walls. The gibbering pack of tree apes that said nothing, 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 and said it loud, loud, loud. He had taken to calling them relatives from the very first. How's Uncle Lewis today? Who? And not Maud. The most significant memory he had of Mildred, really, was of a little girl in a forest without trees. How odd. Or rather, a little girl lost on a plateau where there used to be trees. You could feel the memory of their shapes all about, sitting in the centre of the living room. The living room. What a good job of labelling that was now. No matter when he came in, The walls were always talking to Mildred. Something must be done. Yes, something must be done. Well, let's not stand and talk. Let's do it. I'm so mad I could spit. Was it all about Mildred? Mildred couldn't say. Who was mad at whom? Mildred didn't quite know. What were they going to do? Well, said Mildred, wait around and see. He had waited around to see. A great thunderstorm of sound gushed from the walls. Music bombarded him at such an immense volume that his bones were almost shaken from their tendons. He felt his jaw vibrate, his eyes wobble in his head. He was a victim of concussion. When it was all over, he felt like a man who had been thrown from a cliff whirled in a centrifuge and spat over a waterfall that fell and fell into emptiness and emptiness, and never quite touched the bottom, never, never quite, no, not quite touched the bottom. And you fell so fast, you didn't touch the sides either. Never quite touched anything. The thunder faded. The music died. There, said Mildred. And it was indeed remarkable. Something had happened. Even though the people in the walls of the room had barely moved, and nothing had really been settled, you had the impression that someone had turned on a washing machine, or sucked you up in a gigantic vacuum. You drowned in music and pure cacophony. He came out of the room sweating, and on the point of collapse. Behind him, Mildred sat in her chair, and the voices went on again. Well, everything will be all right now, said an aunt. Oh, don't be too sure, said a cousin. Now, don't get angry. Who's angry? You are. I am. 
You're mad. Why would I be mad? Because... That's all very well, cried Montag. But what are they mad about? Who are these people? Who's that man and who's that woman? Are they husband and wife? Are they divorced, engaged? What? Good God, nothing's connected up. They, said Mildred, well, they, they had this fight, you see. They certainly fight a lot. You should listen. I think they're married. Yes, they're married. Why? And if it was not the three walls, soon to be four, and the dream complete, then it was the open car, and Mildred driving a hundred miles an hour across town, he shouting at her, and she shouting back, and both trying to hear what was said, but only hearing the scream of the car. At least keep it down to the minimum, he yelled. What? she cried. Keep it down to fifty-five, the minimum, he shouted. The what? she shrieked. Speed, he shouted, and she pushed it up to a hundred and five miles an hour and tore the breath from his mouth. When they stepped out of the car, she had the seashells stuffed in her ears. Silence. Only the wind blowing softly. Mildred. He stirred in bed. He reached over and pulled one of the tiny musical insects out of her ear. Mildred. Mildred. Yes? Her voice was faint. He felt it was one of the creatures electronically inserted in between the slots of the phono-colour walls, speaking, but the speech not piercing the crystal barrier. He could only pantomime, hoping she would turn his way and see him. They could not touch through the glass. Mildred, do you know that girl I was telling you about? What girl? She was almost asleep. The girl next door. What girl next door? You know... The high school girl. Clarice is her name. Oh, yes, said his wife. I haven't seen her for a few days. Four days, to be exact. Have you seen her? No. I meant to talk to you about her. Strange. Oh, I know the one you mean. I thought you would. Her? said Mildred in the dark room. What about her? asked Montag. I meant to tell you. Forgot. Forgot. Tell me now. What is it? I think she's gone. Gone? The whole family moved out somewhere, but she's gone for good. I think she's dead. We couldn't be talking about the same girl. No, the same girl. McKellen. Run over by a car. Four days ago. I'm not sure, but I think she's dead. The whole family moved out anyway. I don't know, but... I think she's dead. You're not sure of it? No, not sure. Pretty sure. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Forgot. Four days ago? I forgot all about it. Four days ago. He said, quietly lying there. They lay in the dark room, not moving, either of them. Good night, she said. He heard a faint rustle. Her hands moved. The electronic thimble moved like a praying mantis on the pillow, touched by her hand. Now it was in her ear again, humming. He listened, and his wife was singing under her breath. Outside the house, a shadow moved. An autumn wind rose up and faded away. But there was something else in the silence that he heard. It was like a breath exhaled upon the window, 
It was like a faint drift of greenish luminescent smoke, the motion of a single huge October leaf blowing across the lawn and away. The hound, he thought. It's out there tonight. It's out there now. If I opened the window... He did not open the window. He had chills and fever in the morning. You can't be sick, said Mildred. He closed his eyes over the hotness. Yes. But you were all right last night. No, I wasn't all right. He heard the relatives shouting in the parlour. Mildred stood over his body, curiously. He felt her there. He saw her without opening his eyes. Her hair burnt by chemicals to a brittle straw. Her eyes, with a kind of cataract, unseen, but suspect, far behind the pupils. The reddened, pouting lips. The body, as thin as a praying mantis from dieting. And her flesh, like white bacon. He could remember her no other way. Will you bring me aspirin and water? You've got to get up, she said. It's noon. You've slept five hours later than usual. Will you turn the parlor off? he asked. That's my family. Will you turn it off for a sick man? I'll turn it down. She went out of the room and did nothing to the parlor and came back. Is that better? Thanks. That's my favorite program, she said. What about the aspirin? You've never been sick before. She went away again. Well, I'm sick now. I'm not going to work tonight. Call Beady for me. You acted funny last night. She returned, humming. Where's the aspirin? He glanced at the water glass she handed him. Oh, she walked to the bathroom again. Did something happen? A fire is all. I had a nice evening, she said in the bathroom. What doing? The parlor. What was on? Programs. What programs? Some of the best. Who? Oh, you know, the bunch. Yes, the bunch, the bunch, the bunch. He pressed at the pain in his eyes, and suddenly the odor of kerosene made him vomit. Mildred came in, humming. She was surprised. Why'd you do that? She looked with dismay at the floor. We burned an old woman with her books. It's a good thing the rug's washable. She fetched a mop and worked on it. I went to Helen's last night. Couldn't you get the shows in your own parlor? Sure, but it's nice visiting. She went out into the parlor. He heard her singing. Mildred, he called. She returned, singing and snapping her fingers softly. Aren't you going to ask me about last night? He said. What about it? We burned a thousand books. We burned a woman. Well, the parlor was exploding with sound. We burned copies of Dante and Swift and Marcus Aurelius. Wasn't he a European? Something like that. Wasn't he a radical? I never read him. He was a radical. Mildred fiddled with the telephone. You don't expect me to call Captain Beatty, do you? You must. You must. Don't shout. I wasn't shouting. He was up in bed, suddenly enraged and flushed, shaking. The parlor roared in the hot air. I can't call him. I can't tell him I'm sick. Why? Because you're afraid, he thought. A chill, feigning illness, afraid to call, because after a moment's discussion, the conversation would run so 
Yes, Captain. I feel better already. I'll be in at ten o'clock tonight. You're not sick. Montag fell back in bed. He reached under his pillow. The hidden book was still there. Mildred, how would it be if, well, maybe I quit my job for a while? You want to give up everything? After all these years of working, because one night, some woman and her books... You should have seen her, Millie. She's nothing to me. She shouldn't have had books. It was her responsibility. She should have thought of that. I hate her. She's got you going. And next thing you know, we'll be out. No house, no job, nothing. You weren't there. You didn't see, he said. There must be something in the books. Things we can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. There must be something there. You don't stay for nothing. She was simple-minded. She was as rational as you and I. More so, perhaps. And we burned her. That's water under the bridge. No, not water. Fire. Ever seen a burned house? It smolders for days. Well, this fire will last me the rest of my life. God, I've been trying to put it out in my mind all night. I'm crazy with trying. You should have thought of that before becoming a fireman. Thought? He said. Was I given a choice? My grandfather and father were firemen. In my sleep, I ran after them. The parlor was playing a dance tune. This is the day you go on the early shift, said Mildred. You should have gone two hours ago. I just noticed. It's not just the woman that died, said Montag. Last night, I thought about all the kerosene I've used in the past ten years. I thought about the books, and for the first time, I realized that a man was behind each one of the books. A man had to think them up. A man had to take a long time to put them down on paper. And I'd never even thought that before. He got out of bed. It took some man a lifetime, maybe, to put some of his thoughts down, looking around at the world and life. And then I came along in two minutes, and boom. It's all over. Let me alone, said Mildred. I didn't do anything. Let you alone? That's all very well, but how can I leave myself alone? We need not to be left alone. We need to really be bothered in once in a while. How long is it since you were really bothered about something important, about something real? And then he shut up, for he remembered last week, and the two white stones staring up at the ceiling, and the pump snake with the probing eye, and the two soap-faced men with cigarettes moving in their mouths when they talked. But that was another Mildred. That was a Mildred so deep inside this one, and so bothered, really bothered, that the two women had never met. He turned away. Mildred said, Well, now you've done it. Out front of the house. Look who's here. I don't care. There's a phoenix car just driven up, and a man in a black shirt with an orange snake stitched on his arm coming up the front walk. Captain Beatty, he said. Captain Beatty. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, 
，拜拜。